If you have a Bible, open it to 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll be on page 959 and 960 in the Black Bibles under the chairs there. If you want to grab one of those, you can follow along with us. Today is the theme of love. We're hitting on love as we focus on some, just some traditional uh, themes for the Christmas time of year as people prepare their hearts to think about all that Jesus brought when he came here. The word Advent means the arrival, the arrival of a notable person or event. And so at this time of year, we're thinking about what did it mean, Jesus showing up on the scene. And the Bible repeatedly says that love is what God was up to. Love is what God was up to. He sent Jesus because he loves us. As we just sang in that great song, some of you are confused by that song. I always mean to talk about that song we just sang, How He Loves Us, um, because it uses this terrifying imagery of a hurricane storm to talk about God's love. And I just want to connect the dots for you that that is a common biblical theme. It's not one in our culture that we connect with. We tend to think of love as, as you know, warm fuzzy. But in the Bible, it's sometimes terrifying. Uh, we see in Isaiah 6, God appearing before Isaiah, and he has... He is dumbstruck. He is undone, he says, when he gets a vision of God. It's so terrifying and awesome in God's holiness. We see this when God shows up to give the law to the people of Israel. The people of Israel say, we don't want to talk to God, Moses. You talk to God for us because we can't handle it. And then we have this beautiful picture of it in a song in Psalm 18, where it talks about God riding on the wings of the storm, him showing up, smoke coming out of his nostrils, terrifying. And so our hope is in a God who's terrifying in his holiness and, and gracious in his love. And those, those two things go together as a paradox, and it's kind of confusing when it's all mashed together in one small song, but that's, that's kind of the idea of what we're singing about. We're going to talk more about what this love looks like in our human relationships today. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is speaking to a Corinthian church that is racked with immorality and immaturity. They are immature they are immoral. Um, the city of Corinth was just a corrupt city, all kinds of sexual immorality, a city very much like Colleen, Texas, a city very much like Las Vegas, very much like our modern cities today, just full of distractions and people fulfilling uh, their own selfish desires instead of loving each other. And so Paul's speaking into this context here, and then even more specifically in Corinthians in this letter between chapter 12 and chapter 14, we have chapter 13. And in chapter 12 and 14, he's trying to teach them as a church, when you gather, not to be so focused on the flashy gifts that people have, things like prophecy or speaking in another tongue, a foreign language. He's saying, don't get distracted by these flashy gifts that people have, but love each other. You know, sometimes we can be so obsessed with our own gifts that we forget why we were given those gifts. You were given your gifts to love other people. And so at Christmas time, we celebrate the love that God gave us by giving us Jesus, the ultimate gift, and we receive that gift and we love others because of God's love for us. That's what biblical love is. First John 4 says, uh, love of God was manifested in this, that he sent Jesus for us. That, that's our definition of love. Another way I would say it is, is uh, being driven to pursue the, the care and the good of another, right? That's what it means socially. That's what it means in what God did for us. Our sin, our brokenness was ruining our life. We had a suicidal self-obsession with, with what we want 
And God turns us around through the gospel and he says, now I'm going to take your sins on the cross and I'm going to give you my righteousness and I want you to live that out now. I want you to love other people. So let's look at it in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a lot of uh, context and background there. Maybe someday we can spend more time in the, the letter. It's a fun and exciting letter in the Bible here. Um, he ends chapter 12 saying, now I'll show you a more excellent way, all right? Now a better way, a more excellent way than all these other things you're struggling with. And here it is, chapter 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Let me pray for us. God, we ask, because we believe that you're loving, that you would teach us. We ask, because we believe that you're loving, that you would change us. And God, often that's painful. We, we want to remain who we are. We want to remain in charge of our life. And so I pray for those of us that believe, that, that trust that you're loving, and for those of us that don't, that, that doubt, that aren't sure, for all of us, God, I pray that you would open our minds and give us a, an openness to who you are and what you have done in the world through Jesus so that we could be different, so that we could actually love each other. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you... Uh, a little story about love and what this looks like, I think, kind of got a good illustration of this, a little, little parable from my own life, a little story uh, about getting married. Um, I married my beautiful wife 20 years, more than 20 years ago now, which is crazy. I always like to joke because I'm only 25 that I got married 20 <laughs> years ago. But uh, we've been married for over 20 years now, and I married her because I love her, right? And it's a common tradition in our culture, probably a lot of you are uh, have had the same experience too. If you got married, a lot of times we dress up for a wedding, right? One of the ways that we show the importance and the gravity of what's happening, we dress up and look impressive. Any of you dress up for your wedding? Raise your hand if you dressed up for your wedding. Some of you? Most of you. Okay. Um, so that's what we did. Uh, it was 93, which uh, stylistically was still the 80s, really, right? So I had this awesome, like, tails, and I had big hair, and so I had this cool tux with a white bow tie, and I had these long tails, uh, black tuxedo, white shirt, white tie, very, very fancy, looked pretty impressive. Um, I remember getting ready that morning and just being like, yeah, you look good, right? Like looking in the mirror and 
getting my hair all fixed up here and um, just getting together. Get, I wanted to look good because I love her, right? I wanted to display my beauty, my looking good, because I love my wife. And I wanted to uh, have the right words, too. I wanted to sound good, right? There were things I was going to say in the ceremony, my vows, my promises. So I, I looked over those, and I practiced those, and I worked on it. And I, I spent all this time preparing and, and wanting to look just right and wanting that moment to be so good. And in that time of preparation and being impressed with how flashy I was and how good I looked, I actually missed the wedding. I, I forgot to, to go to the wedding. Isn't that terrible? What? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm just joking. I said it was a parable, right? Okay. It was a parable. I, want, I had this idea that I'd just leave you hanging for a long time, but then you'd all hate me and drive me out. Okay. So it was a parable. No, I really made it. I was even early, which is, you know, this happened a few times in my life. I've been early for things. I was even early in real life. But what if that happened? What if, right? Can you imagine something like that happening? You're so focused on looking good. You're so focused on how you want to execute that love that you don't love. You don't do it because you're, you're focused on the package or, or the flash or how impressive you look. And that's, that's what's happening in Corinth. Paul's saying, you've gotten distracted. These secondary things are pulling you away from what is primary. And so you're all fascinated with these flashy gifts, impressing people with prophecy or foreign tongues or whatever it may be. And so you're displaying these things that are marks for you, that you've got God involved in your life. Look at me, God has anointed me. Or look at me, God's involved in my life, but you're not actually loving people. Paul is saying that that's something we often do, and especially is their case. And I think at Christmas time, when we get so busy, if you're culturally involved in the normal things we do, of parties and gifts and lights and celebrations, it can be easy to get distracted with the flash and the surroundings and the packaging and miss the love. And Paul here is arguing, make sure you're doing the love part right. Are you caring for the good of others, or is it just about you and how you look? Oftentimes, we get caught up looking like we're caring and don't actually care. And so he's saying, make sure you're actually caring. Make sure you're actually loving. The first way that he describes this is that love is better than gifts. He makes a distinction. They're not the same thing. So hopefully that's an encouragement to you, because some of you are here this morning feeling like, I don't have a lot of flash. I don't have impressive gifts. I'm not sure if I have the skills or the talents needed for what God's called me to. And Paul would say, yeah, there's plenty of people with flashy gifts that don't love anybody. What I want you to do is love. So hopefully that's encouragement to you. Just, just love people, right? Don't worry about how flashy your gifts are or how impressive your intellect, your skills, your talents are. Just love people. That's what he's saying to do here. And love is better than those gifts. Love is better. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So here, one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in their lives, we see it especially at Pentecost. The, the people at Pentecost, they spoke in different languages. So there are people from different languages, and they heard the gospel in their language, and they were amazed. And so apparently some of that's taking place here in Corinth. They're speaking in different languages. We don't know how much of this is spontaneous or how much of is it like how we do today, right? If you're a teacher and you've studied Greek, you're like, well, the Greek word for this is blah, 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 you know, and you're throwing out all these different languages, but nobody actually understands what you're saying. I think there's a whole spectrum of ways this can be displayed. Probably much of what the Corinthians were doing was the kind of thing we see at Pentecost, right? Holy Spirit inspired, speaking in a different tongue, speaking in a different language. 
Paul says, the people don't understand you. So you're just like a noisy gong. You're just like a clanging cymbal. It doesn't really make any sense to anybody. And he goes on with that argument in chapter 14. And he, and he communicates what I would call the principle of understandability, which is a really big core value, kind of a hidden core value for us at this church. Part of why we do what we do. Some things we do are very churchy culturally, and some things we do are very non-traditional because we want people to understand what's happening. When you show up Sunday morning, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, people should get it. People should understand. So don't be so impressed with your gifts that you're displaying your gifts. They're impressive, but nobody understands you. They're like a clanging gong, a noisy symbol, he says. He says it in a different way. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. It's convicting to me. I like to understand stuff. I like to learn stuff. I like to know the mysteries of who God is and understand the scripture so I can communicate that to you. But you know what? I could get so caught up with knowing stuff that I don't actually care about you. It's just about me. Look at me. Look at how much I know. Look how much I understand. Look at the great faith that I have. Paul's saying that's, that's the road they're, they're wandering off onto here. He's saying don't make it about the gifts. Don't make it about you. Make it about the people you're loving. Are you, are you actually loving people? Are you just over here piling up more knowledge? Are you just over here looking more like you have faith but not actually using your faith to love other people? Faith in a God that loves us should be expressed in the fruit of the Holy Spirit of us actually loving each other. That's what it should look like, Paul says. He goes on in verse 3, If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Saying so, forget the, the teaching and knowledge illustration. Let's go to the doers, right? Those of you that are doers, if you do everything, you make the ultimate sacrifice. You've given it all away. You've, you've died. You've given yourself up, but you don't love. It was a waste. It was a waste. He says, make sure you actually love people. Make sure you actually love people. It's possible to make it about us no matter what you're doing, no matter what your gifts, whether you're a doer, whether you're a thinker, no matter who you are, no matter what your gifts, it's possible to make it all about you and not love other people. I was listening to a panel on the suicide of David Foster Wallace, who was a great author that just killed himself a few years ago, and they're arguing over, well, did he do it really to just uh, have an enduring name as an artist, or did he do it because he was just depressed? And, and most people think he did it just because he was depressed. But they were having the argument because people do that. People kill themselves because it's all about them oftentimes. Sometimes it's just pure medical. They can't get up another day. But sometimes they do it to make a splash, to make an impression. And Paul's talking about that kind of case here. You can give up everything. You can make every sacrifice and it still be about you. Still be totally about you. Still be about your selfishness. And you're not actually loving other people. Paul says, love is better than all these gifts. Love is better than sacrifice. Love is better than knowledge. Love is better than tongues. Love is better than prophecy. Love is better than teaching and understanding these mysteries. Love is better than these gifts. You want to be willing to love, even if your gift is set aside. I think our leadership over the years have modeled that beautifully to me. That's one of the things I love about Grace Bible Church. Over seven years now, we've had some, just some great and godly people that have just given of themselves. No matter what their gifts are, they don't care. It's not about highlighting their gifts, but they've, they've given to, to you, to others, to me, and, and just loved, despite what their gifts are. And I was reading in a leadership book where this was, uh, this was labeled as a core value at a, at a particular company. There's a leadership book called The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni. 
He's an author I like to read a lot because he just kind of applies common sense and a Christian worldview to leadership, to team dynamics and things like that. He's written a lot of good books. Another one is The Five Dysfunctions of the Team or uh, Death by Meeting. I just love that title of the book, so I like to throw it out. <laughs> Death by Meeting. It's a great title. Um, but this one book called The Advantage, he's talking about this becoming a core value in a particular company, and they labeled it Floor Sweeper. So I have a picture here. Here's someone sweeping the floor. Um, so now if you're an executive and your gifts are leadership or your gifts are administration, you could say, I'm not about floor sweeping. That's not what I do. This is my gift. But this became a core value at this company because they said, we want to be the kind of place where no matter what needs to be done, people will do it. No matter who they are, no matter what their title is. And he said, one executive actually left. Actually, actually, they went through the core value process. They narrowed it down. They said, this is really a core value of our company, floor sweeper. We want anyone, no matter what their position, to be willing to do anything that needs to be done. And one of the executives said, well, no, I've invested all this time in my education and my resume. I'm not going to, I don't want to do that. That's not me. And he left. But the company thought this was an important value. I would say that this is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. It's an example of what Paul is talking about here. Don't make it about your gifts. Now, does that mean we're wrong to focus on our gifts? Like for me personally, I'll just use myself as an illustration. I believe I'm gifted as a teacher and that that's the main thing I should be doing. But I don't use that as an excuse to say, I will never clean up a mess in this church, right? Like that would be crazy. I'm going to love people and serve in other ways outside my gifting. My wife could tell you, I'm, my gift is not cleaning things, right? But, but I will do that in my home. I do that to love my wife. Right? That's her love language. I'll communicate love to her in that way, but it's not my gift. So I'd say, yeah, focus on your gifts. If God's wired you in certain ways, if you're administrative, administrate. If you are gifted in mercy, show mercy. But we don't use our gifts as an excuse to not love people with the need of the moment, right? What is the need of the moment? What's the need of the person? Love is ultimately sacrificing self for the needs of the other, giving up yourself for others. Often for us, that means focusing on what we're good at, but then sometimes that means stepping outside of what we're good at, giving up self in order to care for someone else. Jesus modeled this in John 13. If you're familiar with the story in John 13, it's the one where he picked up a towel and he washed his disciples' feet. Great story there. It's a great place to look to give you motivation to be a floor sweeper. Because when you look at John 13, it says Jesus knew where he was coming from and he knew where he was going. And out of that, he picked up the towel and he washed their feet. He did the slave work of that day, the dirtiest, most disgusting, menial labor of that day. He did that out of love for his disciples. And so that's the kind of attitude we're supposed to have. That's how we're supposed to treat each other. We're supposed to love each other in that way. Paul goes on, and he says in this next section, love digs in. I'm using a different word here to kind of frame it in a different way for you, and I think there's a wraparound here with the words used where the last word in this next section could be translated dig in. It's the word often translated endure or persevere. And in the Greek, it's hupomeno, which literally would mean to dig in. It would be used of the military if a Roman soldier with the spikes in his boots would dig in to, to take position, hold up a shield, fight. He would dig in. And hupomeno is, is literally um, remain under. It's literal, but nobody ever you know, translates it exactly literally. It means stand your ground, right? Dig in. And so... You might use this in sports. Uh, you might think of rock climbing, right? When you're rock climbing, you are digging in. I have a picture here 
of someone digging into a, a crack. Any of you ever been rock climbing? You ever done that before? Some of you? Raise your hand if you've rock climbed. Some of you. Okay. All right, so bad illustration. I'll have to use another one next time. But <laughs> you would dig in, right? If you're climbing, imagine if, if you were to do this. Imagine you're digging into a handhold. You're digging your toes in to get position to move forward. And I found this other picture as I was looking for, for dig-in pictures that I thought was helpful. It's hard to see in, if you're on the back row, but you've got basically just someone's hands all shredded. This is someone that's been rock climbing, and now their fingers are just shredded. It's messy to dig in. I want you to see that as well before we look at the text, okay? So the word at the end, verse 7, hupomeno, endure, love endures, is dig in, stand your ground. And he's going to get this whole list of virtues that I believe are, are wrapped around with the concept of the messiness of digging in and standing our ground and enduring, right? Because it starts off in verse 4 with love is patient. And the Greek word for that is macrothumia, which the King James gets better than any other translation. I'm not always a fan of the King James, but this one, they got it exactly right. It's long-suffering. That's what patience is, long-suffering. So we've got a wraparound here. All the virtues are packaged with the bookends of long-suffering and standing your ground, okay? So frame it with that in your mind, and then we're going to go through these virtues and, and look at them. And what I want you to do as I read this list is I want you to pray that the Holy Spirit would bring to your own mind how you need to change. I'm praying this myself. I need to change. You need to change. We need to change. What is it going to look like for us to change so that we love others better, so that we define love biblically with, with the things we do, so that we do love? It's important to make the distinction again that love is not just a feeling towards someone. It's a part of it. We often have feelings of wanting to love someone, but love biblically is something you do. Love is something you do. You don't always feel it. You do love. And this is going to be defined here. So listen to this. And again, just, just pray that the Spirit would, would lead here. Book ended with verse 4 and verse 7. Love is patient and it endures. It's long-suffering and it stands its ground and digs in. Okay. Love is patient and kind. Are you kind? Am I kind? Am I patient? Am I long-suffering? Or do I hit a point where I say, nope, can't go any farther? Am I long-suffering? Am I willing to dig in and do what it takes? Am I kind to others? Love does not envy or boast. It, if your security, your identity rests in the gospel and the truth that God loves you and saved you and gives you his righteousness through union with Christ, then you're not going to envy others because you have all you need in Christ. You're not going to boast because you have all you need in Christ. You'll only boast in Christ. It says love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Another way of saying boasting, right? It's not about look at me, look at all my gifts. It's other-centered. You're, you're caring for others. He goes on and he says, or rude, verse 5, the beginning there. Love's not rude. Are you rude? Is it about you or is it about others? Do you care for other people? It does not insist on its own way. Love's not self-centered, self-willed. Love is about the other. You're caring for the good of the other. Now, again, remember, frame that with the God of all holiness and perfection. Sometimes he's going to challenge us, right? Sometimes he's going to challenge us. But we don't challenge others with our way. We challenge others with God's way. So it says, does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Are you grumpy? God's going to challenge you 
to not be irritable or resentful. Verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, it rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with God's standards of holiness. The uh, biblical people are people that say, that God gets to tell me what's right and wrong, not my desires. I desire all kinds of wrong things, all kinds of wrong things. And when those desires come into my heart, I ask God to help me to choose what he wants instead of what I want and trust that really he cares more about my joy than I do. He knows better than I do. And so it says, love, true love, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Are you willing to get messy? Are you willing, again, to use the picture I used earlier of the shredded hands that have dug into the rock, are you willing to go through the messiness of what that looks like to love others? That's, that's what God uh, is asking us to do. Again, that's beautifully illustrated in Jesus, washing his disciples' feet. It's beautifully illustrated in Jesus, dying on the cross for our sins. This is love. 1 John 4 uses this description of the love of God is manifested in this. Jesus giving his life to us. And that word manifest is a beautiful word in Greek that just has this kind of connotation. It has this ring in the ears of a first century person of a hero swooping into the scene, right? When I say the word swoop, that sounds different to you, right, than manifest. He swooped in to save us. He's this hero that showed up on the scene to save us. The Bible tells us that, that that is love. Jesus coming for us. That's what we should be celebrating at Christmas time. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love is forward-thinking. Love is positive. Love, again, is not about us, but it's about God and what he's doing, hoping in his change, hoping in his transformation, and hoping that for your neighbor, for your friend, and for your enemy. And love endures all things. So my question is, what, what are the issues that the Holy Spirit is telling you, I don't love in this way? For me, it's about half the list. I'm feeling convicted that God wants me to change in my life. My question for you is, what is God calling on you to change in your life? As Christians, we are to repent, right, by confessing it to God. First John says, confess your sins to God. He's faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you. So confess that before God. Say, God, I'm, I'm wrong here. I'm not loving biblically. I'm failing to meet your standard. Thank you for the forgiveness that you offer me in Jesus. Help me change. And James 5 says, not only to confess our sins to God, but confess our sins to each other. We do that in community as Christians. Confess to another person. Find a, a friend and ask them to pray for you that you may be healed, James 5.18. Confess your sins and, and pray for each other. But don't just stop there. Search the scriptures. What does the scripture have to say about that virtue or that struggle in your life? Study. Become an expert on what God has to say because we have a different idea about it ourselves, right? That's what, I mean, we're recognizing... I'm going the wrong direction. God wants me to go this direction. So God, what do you have to say? What does your word say about this? Make a plan. Don't just confess it and be done, but ask for prayer. Bring it into the light of community. Search the scriptures. Find a, a Christian book. I could re recommend books to you, godly books that will help you to, to change in certain areas. Pursue change. Systematically think through childhood lies that you're believing and systematically unseat those, right? Tear those down. Say, you know what? I've always believed this about myself or about God. Systematically connect those dots because there are childhood promises and vows and I swear I'll never or I swear I'll always. Those statements that we make as kids that we still live under the power of those things, that demonic forces use those in our life to communicate and continue to 
preach lies into our mind, what are those? What are those lies that you're still believing? Unseat those with the truth. Believe the truth. What does the scripture have to say? What does God have to say? Don't continue going in the wrong direction. Now, we, we give you opportunities to do this in community through things like Celebrate Recovery or the women's ministry Bible studies or small group Bible studies that meet in homes, but you can do this even with just one or two friends. I encourage you to have a plan to, to make this happen, to not just sit back, but to pursue learning how to love as God tells us to love. The last thing that Paul points out is that love never ends. Love never ends. And this section is kind of interesting. He uses multiple analogies here. He uses multiple ways to illustrate this. And um, so this last section, I just titled it with uh, verse 8, love never ends. Love never ends, it says in verse 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. He's talking about the end of all things when all things are made right. We look forward to Jesus coming back someday and all things being made right. That's our hope, that there will be a day when there's no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, where we're, we're whole, where I no longer struggle with sin anymore, where I've been glorified, where I am in God's presence. That's the future that we hope for. So we talk about this in Christianity often as the already and not yet. Already I'm reconciled to God. Already I'm forgiven. Already he's my Abba Father. He's adopted me into his family. But not yet am I perfect. And Paul's saying that these other gifts focus on the maturing that still needs to take place. Other gifts like prophecy and, and tongues and knowledge are, are talking about the, the partiality of where we are now in the in-between times. We're not there yet. We're maturing. And so we need these other things to mature. But he's saying, but remember, love is always going to be there. Love is permanent. And love is what we're always about. That's our goal now. And it's our goal in the future. So in heaven, we'll still love, although we may not need any more maturing, right? We may not need growing up still when we're perfected in God's presence, but, but we'll still be loving. We'll still be loving each other. We'll still be loving God. We'll still be loving be, being loved by God as well. And so he says, these things will pass away. There's a partiality here. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, he says, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So he says, we see in a mirror dimly because in that day, they didn't have the mirrors like we do. Like most of us in our, our modern bathrooms have super bright lights and a perfect mirror, right? How many of you have, a, uh, have indoor plumbing with a mirror? Raise your hand. Okay, so yeah, most of you, all right? So this is hard to connect with here. There's some cultural distance. The mirrors at those time were, were more cloudy, right? They weren't as perfect and not everybody could afford a mirror. It wasn't just common, right? Today, uh, generally, even the poorest among us have a mirror. They're just, they're just everywhere, right? But back then, the mirror would have been more like looking at your reflection uh, in your car window, you know? It would have been more cloudy. You can see your reflection, but it's not as perfect as, you know, in the morning, you're getting ready in the bright lights and, you know, you see more of your blemishes than you really want to see in the morning. Sometimes it's so bright and perfect. Here he's saying the common experience is just seeing Vaguely, dimly, a little, you know, you see a little bit in the mirror. He says, someday we're going to see perfectly. Right now, we don't see completely yet. There will be a day when we see completely, when we completely know God, when we see him face to face. He says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. God already knows me fully. 
that I know him in a creaturely way, in an imperfect way, in a partial way, and we're still growing. We're still growing up. And so Paul uses the illustration of growing up and putting aside childish things. And he says a motivation for that is the knowledge that love is always there. And so to be about love and to put away our own preferences in order to love others is part of the growing up process. And he commands us to continue pursuing love. And I think his illustration of growing up, leaving childhood behind, and being mature, at one level here he's saying, that's the future we look forward to. We will be perfect. So my question for you is, what are the childish things that God has still for you to put away now in the pursuit of loving others? What are the childish things that distract you? It's good to have fun. It's good to escape. It's good to play. I think the Bible frames this well in the Ten Commandments with the whole idea of Sabbath, right? Work six days, play one day to God's glory. Just rest. Don't work. Worship Him. Say, God, you got it. You got it under control. I'm resting in you. I'm playing. I'm enjoying you. I'm thankful to you. I'm going to worship you. But then you work six days. And that's, that's part of growing up, right? Um, I was going to ask this as a question. I won't ask you this question. But anyway, growing up involves working, right? Growing up involves working. For those of you that, let me say it this way. For those of you that don't have a job, you should be working anyway, right? God has work for you to do. There's always work for you to do, and growing up involves working. I, I want to pick on one illustration, and I just I want to explain first before I show you this picture that this is an illustration. This isn't like an absolute law here that I'm presenting. So this is just an example of one childish thing that you might begin putting away. I have a guy here <laughs> playing video games. Now, I'm not trying to say, I just have to clarify, I'm not trying to say video games are evil, right? I personally don't like video games, but... I wouldn't say that video games are evil. I would just use this as an illustration because sometimes what is a, uh, a liberty we have, right, it's fine to play video games, becomes a distraction, becomes a childish way to avoid loving other people. And I really liked this picture specifically, so those that like listen on the audio or whatever that are deployed won't get this, but when you see the picture, look at the size of this guy's arms, right? This guy has huge arms and he's playing a game with his thumbs. I just want you to feel the irony of that. He needs to be out helping somebody move or carrying an old lady across the street or something, right? And he's playing video games. I, I, so again, I, again, I'm not trying to say video games are evil. I'm not trying to say that they're the worst thing in the world. I'm just trying to say that playing games are fun and it's a childish thing that we can enjoy. But generally, growing up means putting away childish things and you don't spend all of your time playing still okay to play sometimes as adults, right? But there's this general law of you grow up, you work, right? You work. And, and the biblical framework of that is work is about love. It's not about yourself. You don't work to say, look at me, I work. You work for the benefit of others. That's how God has structured our society. You're actually loving others. You're loving your family. You're building, you're creating, you're making culture, you're glorifying God with whatever gifts you have. But again, it's not all about you and your gifts. It's about loving the other. So Again, I'm not saying video games are evil. I think there's also, I use this picture because I found another picture of this same model, right? So some of these pictures, you know, are just set up pictures you find online. This guy here, same guy's playing video games, and look here, he's reading a book, okay? So this illustration is to, to say that those of you that are cultural snobs that are like, yeah, video games are evil, but I spend all my time reading books, right? There's, there's all kinds of things that we can uh, justify and say, 
Well, it's immature to, to play video games, but it's mature of me to waste all my time reading books and not love people. There's all kinds of things that can distract us from loving people. So, so I use that illustration to say it could be anything. Maybe video games. Maybe it's some great thing, like Paul was arguing earlier, some beautiful, great gift that he's giving you, but you, it drives you to distraction. You're not actually loving people. You're not willing to put it away, but like a child, you're wrapped up in your own world and you don't care about other people. It's a beautiful thing to see as you raise children, to see them grow in their knowledge of like the existence of other humans outside of themselves, right? Have you, ever, you just kind of watch this happen as kids get older. When they're little, they have no concept of others other than you're there to provide for me, right? That's what others exist for. But as they grow, they grow in their ability to, to be grown up, and that means love other people, care about other people. So Paul is saying, put away childish things. What are the childish things you need to put away? They might look very childish. They might look very sophisticated. Different things for different people. What are the things in your life that you need to put away or put boundaries around or do less or focus on less so that you can be about the business of loving others? Pray. Ask God to show you. Again, work that into community. Ask your friend to help you be more efficient, to, to use your time well, to love others with the gifts that God's given you. He, he finishes up with verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. Love goes on forever. God showed his love to us through Jesus, and he wants us to receive that love by faith and then love others in both word and deed in our lives. Let me pray for God, thank you that you love us. And God, I pray that you would help us to love others. I pray that you would teach us to display that love. God, help us to, to show that in real action, in these real character traits, in these very real virtues. God, we confess that we don't do it well. But we also confess that you are our hope, that you forgive us, that you change us, that you want to put us on a new direction. We pray that you do this for your glory, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.